A few years ago, uh, a TV channel listed somewhere that they would be showing the movie classic The Wizard of Oz over the weekend. And th this isn't unusual. Of all the movies that play on TV, The Wizard of Oz plays probably more than most. It is a well-known and well-loved classic movie. What was unusual was the summary of the movie that the reviewer wrote just below the title. He wrote this, The Wizard of Oz. Transported to a surreal landscape, a young girl kills the first person she meets and then teams up with three strangers to kill again. Um, I've never really thought about the story of The Wizard of Oz like that, but I guess that Dorothy as a serial killer is one way to tell the story. If you tell the story from the perspective of the Wicked Witch and her sister, that is the way you would tell the story. Well, this inspired other people to think about uh, creative ways to be in their description of films, which in instead turned into a hashtag, as most things do these days. It was hashtag explain a film plot badly. So other attempts to describe other movies emerge from different perspectives. They include this one, Jaws, rare aquatic creature murdered by a small town blue collar sheriff. Or another, this is really a whole series. Star Wars, father reunites with lost son, wants him to take over the family business. <laughs> family business is the empire, I guess. Or this one I think is just a little too perfect for our small academic community. Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Professor has unusually productive sabbatical. I don't really know any professors that have sabbaticals like that. If someone was going to have a sabbatical like that, it would be Lawson Stone. Preaching tomorrow, by the way. Come hear him. So depending on who you identify with in the story, it can take on many different meanings. Are you the shark or the sheriff? Are you the wicked witch or are you Dorothy? In most stories that we read or watch, we are meant to identify with the hero. That's the point of hero stories. I mean, who reads the Harry Potter series and cheers for the evil Voldemort to win? Don't raise your hand if that's you. It won't go well. <laughs> who watches the Star Wars series and hopes that the evil empire will triumph? Stories are created to help us empathize with the good over the bad, the hero, the good guy or gal, the upstanding citizen. So enter the Old Testament prophet, Hosea. He is quite a hero. He's listening carefully to God, and he follows God's instructions to a T, even when they are very uncomfortable. Hosea is a little bit like the anti-Jonah, you remember Jonah, uh, the prophet who was called to go and save a nation, but he ran the other way? Well, Hosea wasn't told to save a nation. He's just told to marry a woman, and he didn't run. He ran to the altar, which is really remarkable considering the kind of woman and the kind of marriage that God called him to. This woman, we're told, isn't really the kind that you want to bring home to meet the parents. I mean, first, let's just be kind to her. She was unlucky enough to be given the name at birth of Gomer, a girl named Gomer. This woman is who God calls Hosea to marry, and we're told that she will not be faithful within the boundaries of marriage. She will not be a doting wife 
or mother. She's going to have a wandering eye for other men, and let's just be honest, it is more than her eyes that will wander. So night after night, Hosea will hear the door creak open and her tiptoe out. Each morning, she'll sneak back into the house, pretending nothing happened. Each night, Hosea will go to sleep wondering what bed she's in, and each morning, he'll have to face her at the breakfast table again. Hosea's home is a disaster, and it is on display for all to see. Even if he tries to go for a walk or to the market, there's always someone around the corner whispering about him. Isn't that the prophet, they say? I mean, some prophet. He can't even keep his own wife at home. So if anyone ever thought that the Bible was a bland and boring and domesticated book, the story of Hosea should cure them of that. I had to tell my nine-year-old son recently, if the Bible was a movie, you wouldn't be allowed to watch it, which I think made him want to read the Bible more, which is a good thing. So this is definitely the case with the love story gone wrong of Hosea and Gomer. This, friends, is not a book that we usually teach at vacation Bible school or adult Sunday school, for that matter. The more the story goes on, the more brazen Gomer gets. She goes around bragging about gifts she's received and things that her lovers are providing for her, when in reality, these objects and gifts are really things that Hosea has given her. She has babies and names them strange names like not loved and not my son. Nobody's really sure whose children some of them are. And when Gomer gets herself sold off as a possession to someone else, it's Hosea to the rescue. He swoops in and buys her back again, hoping that she will settle down, love him back, and be faithful to him. The worse her unfaithfulness gets, the more faithful Hosea gets. That's Hosea. I mean, he's our hero, right? Hosea is faithful to her. Hosea loves no matter what. So here's where we stop the story and ask, who do you want to identify with? That's how Bible stories work, right? In each story, we find our hearts drawn to one character or another. We want to seek to be like them in their identity. And so if the question is, who do you want to be like? Hosea or Gomer? Dorothy or the witch? We all quickly raise our hands and give the right Sunday school answer. Ooh, I know. I'll be like Hosea. Faithful and loving to the end. Thank you for that lesson and that story, God. The problem is that the Hosea story is not really a multiple choice quiz. See, Hosea's character is already taken. Hosea is playing the part of God. And God makes that very clear at the beginning when he tells Hosea, go and take an unfaithful wife to show my people how they have been unfaithful to me. So if God is Hosea, then we, I'm afraid, that there's only one part left for us to play. We are Gomer. And there is something about this story that is told so well that it makes our skin crawl. Honestly, it makes me want to just tape those pages of the Minor Prophets together and skip over to the next one. Because to think, to think that we would be compared to an unfaithful wife, surely we would never do those kinds of things, right? 
Surely we would never hurt the heart of God in that kind of way, the way of a wife sneaking out on her husband to find fulfillment in other homes, other beds. But this is exactly how this story is intended to hit us and God's people who originally heard the story, the people of Israel, to make us and them squirm with recognition when we find ourselves so negatively painted in a story we would never want to identify with. If given a multiple choice, our pen would hover over that circle forever before we would put it down and circle the part of Gomer. But God is specifically calling Hosea to live out this story in a way that portrays how God's people, the people of Israel, have cheated on him again and again with other gods. So if you think about it, God never even really got a full honeymoon with his people before they were running off jumping into bed with other gods, looking for provision and protection and love elsewhere, and doubting that God's goodness would ever be enough. Their love story had barely even begun when God's people are feasting on forbidden fruit with a serpent behind his back, and then hiding from him, covering themselves when God comes walking to join in intimacy with them. Or the very next book of the Bible, even as Moses is up the mountain getting instructions and laws and commandments about how this people will joyfully live differently as God's people, where are the people? They're right at the base of the very same mountain, heaping gold and jewels into a fire and pulling out a golden calf, just in case this deal with God doesn't work out so well. So, I'm afraid adultery is a perfect metaphor for how God's people have treated him because they, they never fully left God. They just kind of left their options open too. The Israelites never really stopped looking to God for help. They just add some other gods. It can't hurt to pray a little prayer to this God over here. Maybe he can help it rain. Why not pour out an offering in the ground to this fertility goddess? Maybe she can help us grow our crops this year. We'll still worship Yahweh. I mean, of course. But it can't help to look. It can't hurt to look for a little help on the side. And if you and I are really honest with ourselves, I mean, truly honest, those of us whose hearts are fully desiring to love and serve and follow and walk with God have more moments than we would like to admit where we look elsewhere for our fulfillment where we go God-swapping, where we tend to find other strength to meet our needs, wondering if God will answer our requests fast enough we put our own plans in place. And most of our infidelities are very much the same as the Israelites. We look to our own strength, our own ideologies, our own solutions to do the practical work in our lives, but we'll come back to Jesus on Sunday, right? How is that not spiritual bed hopping? And so the role of Hosea the hero is taken, and we get the very uncomfortable spot of recognizing that we are more like Gomer than we would like to admit. This this is a tough story to preach, not just when there are children in the room. I worry about how people hear the story of Hosea and Gomer sometimes. I worry that it will be used to manipulate or even shame people into staying in abusive or damaging situations. We, we might be tempted even to use this story as some kind of biblical marital advice, right? Be like Hosea, he stayed, why can't you? 
Things are tough, but maybe not that tough. The thing is that this story was not really given as instructions for our own marriages. I don't see much here that looks like uh, a template for how to love and be loved. I don't really see a marital self-help book in the story of Hosea, a healthy marriage coming out of this. Praise be to God that this isn't our template for love and marriage. Really, the toughest thing about this story is not what it tells us about marriage, but what it tells us about ourselves. Because this story tells us that we can hurt the heart of God. It tells us that with God, it's always personal. So if the story of Hosea is a little too tough, maybe we can take a detour into another biblical story for a little while, help us sort things out. So the story of the Good Samaritan, that's easier. That is VBS material, Sunday school taught. The story of the Good Samaritan is a parable that Jesus tells in which a man is beaten and robbed and left in the ditch to die. And those that we would expect to play the heroes in the story, those we want to identify with at the beginning, a priest and a Levite, they just, they just walk on by without stopping to help. Then along comes an unlikely hero, the Samaritan, an outcast. He comes along, he is kinder and more generous than anyone would expect from this story. Not just helping the hurting man in the moment, but investing his own time and money and lodging and medical care He seems to want to perpetuate this care for the long term. And I I don't know how you've heard this story in the past, but I have always heard it with a kind of multiple choice ending. Do you recognize the multiple choice? Who will you identify with? Will you be a good helper like the Samaritan? Or will you be too busy or self-absorbed or too preoccupied with your own reputation and just pass by those in need in the ditch? Are you Dorothy or the witch? Are you the shark or the sheriff? We tell this story as a multiple choice question to which we all know the right answer. Be the Samaritan. I recently read a book, though, that just threw all of this into disarray for me. It was by Mark Allen Powell, a professor at Trinity Lutheran Seminary, and it's called What Do They Hear?, It talks about how where we live, what culture we're from, can determine how we hear Scripture and whom we identify with. So Mark Allen Powell lived in Tanzania for a time, and he was surprised to learn from the Tanzanian Christians that he met that they didn't read the story of the Good Samaritan in the same way. They didn't identify with the same people when they read and taught and preached the story. When asked the moral of the story, they said something like this, People who have been beaten and robbed and left for dead cannot afford the luxury of prejudice. They should accept help from whomever offers it, even an outcast, especially since God often comes to help us in unexpected and surprising ways. The Tanzanians told stories of famines that had swept through their country, and they said something like this, when grain was brought into a famished village, Parents of starving children didn't care whether it was the Muslims or the Catholics or the Jehovah's Witnesses who brought it. God can work through anyone, they said, including those we might regard as heretics or apostates, because this is how the Jews would have viewed the Samaritan. 
So they answered the question, who is my neighbor, that is posed here by saying something like, whoever helps me. They added something to the multiple choice question. Their perspective was not as one of the people on the road. They identified with the guy in the ditch. Have you ever been given that multiple choice answer? This doesn't seem like the VBS I went to. So interestingly, Powell says that while living in Tanzania, he learned that both the United States and Tanzania had a government policy called the Good Samaritan Policy. Governments sometimes name their policies after biblical characters, go figure. So the United States' Good Samaritan Policy allows us to provide disaster relief to countries in distress who are not our allies. When we help countries that we're not aligned with, even those that we disagree deeply with, our policy helps to remind us and them and others that just because we're helping doesn't mean we support their government's actions or practices. Tanzania also has a Good Samaritan policy. Can you guess what it is? It is exactly the opposite. Theirs is in respect to receiving aid from other countries. When Tanzania needs disaster relief or support, and they have in the past accepted aid from all kinds of country by evoking, countries by evoking this policy, in effect saying, we accept the help you're offering with gratitude. But this doesn't mean that we believe what you believe or want to be like you. Our Good Samaritan policy has the U.S. acting like the cavalry that rides in on a horse to rescue the man in the ditch. This is how we see ourselves, and it's how we read Scripture, too. The helper, the hero. But the Tanzanians, they have more often found themselves in the ditch and needing help, knowing that no one in a desperate position is in a place to question where their help comes from. Friends, this is, this is more than just adding an answer to a multiple choice question. Who do you want to be? This is a whole new way of reading scripture. And it's a gift to us. Understanding that we don't get the luxury of standing on the side of the road and saying, would I help someone in need or would I not? Because it turns out we are the ones in need. We in the West suffer from a chronic resistance to identifying with needy characters in Scripture. And it prevents us from receiving the gifts of Scripture, the Beatitudes, the exiles, the crucified, they're there for us, but sometimes we just can't see it. This is the gift where Jesus calls us to empathize with the powerless, not as a nice gesture, but because we ourselves are powerless. To identify with the needy because we ourselves are needy if we could just get over ourselves long enough to recognize it. This bad news is always the beginning of the good news, because only the lost are saved. Only the sinner is justified. Only the dead can be raised from the dead. My friend J.D. Walt says, I cannot go any further into the miraculous life of the gospel until I own my responsibility for making the gospel necessary. 
So where do we identify in Scripture? Do we always come in at the resurrection, or might we have a little responsibility in the crucifixion as well? Our only real hope, then, is to claim our part. We are in the ditch, and it's our fault that we're there. We are Gomer. I think the reason that the Hosea Gomer story doesn't get told or preached very often isn't just because it's hard to stomach as a children's sermon, but because we don't really like the part that we've been assigned. Hear your part from Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Did you see your part there? Powerless, ungodly sinners. Those are the words we're given. And and yet we love to say these words out loud each time we take communion together. Just after we confess our sins, we quote this passage, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then we say that proves God's love for us. If we can't own our place as the powerless, ungodly sinners, then we don't get to see the proof of God's love that responds to our face in the ditch. Proof of God's love happens not just once on the cross, but over and over again as God's faithful love seeks to outrun, outlove, outgive any offense that we have caused. And any small offering that we try to give that we think will make up for it, none of this is because we deserved it. Remember, we're in the ditch. We can't help ourselves. But if we never admit that we're the ones who need help, then we never receive it. If we don't know that we're Gomer, then we'll never realize just how amazing God's love story for us has been. So instead of looking with guilt and shame on how this story might cause us to see ourselves, I think God is putting this here so that we can see the face of God more clearly. Think of what God is saying by identifying himself with Hosea in this story, that at the heart of the universe, of our universe, rather than an impersonal set of rules Rather than a balanced scale of the law weighing our good and bad, at the heart of the universe is a heart that can love and be hurt. It can feel joy and love and betrayal, and it can give grace. That for God, it's always personal. He doesn't allow our understanding of grace or sin to be some impersonal balance sheet. He tells us about a relationship where he is powerfully, unceasingly loving us. You're good, good, and you're never gonna let me down no matter what happens on our end. So how personal is it? How personal does this get? Um, I have a privilege of standing not just up here on weekdays, but sometimes I get to stand right here on Saturdays. On weekends. Sometimes, actually most weekends, there's a wedding in Estes Chapel. Sometimes I get to participate in it. And my role is to walk through that door with the groom who stands here and a line of groomsmen. And for a while, we're alone. We stand in this place and we listen to some music and then the bridesmaids come, one by one, beautifully dressed. 
And after they come, the doors close again, right? Why do the doors close? So that they can open. There is a moment. There is a moment on these Saturdays when those doors fly open. And everyone turns, everyone stands, everyone looks, because they want to see the bride. Everyone is facing that way, but do you know where I look? I like, I like to look this way. I love to see the bride, but it's so fun to see the groom seeing the bride for the first time. Do you ever look over your shoulder? It's a beautiful sight. I mean, just the gaze, the it's all worth it, the, all these people are standing here staring at me, but it's, she's the only one in the room. That gaze is a beautiful thing. Think about the role that God has offered to play in this story. He stands here. He's looking at you. I think my problem in reading the Hosea story so often is that I've been looking the wrong direction. When I read Hosea, sometimes I'm looking at the back doors. I'm waiting to see myself come in, the church, the bride come in, and I'm wondering, is she good enough? Am I? What sins have I committed that will stop that gaze from looking so lovingly at me? I'm waiting to see if she, who is me and us, is worthy. I think I'm looking the wrong direction, right? This is the gaze. This is where Hosea focuses us. Look at the groom. Look in his eyes. Do you ever see anything but love here in this whole story? How instructive that God chooses to play this part. And then, not just in this story, but all the way through, the thread carries all the way to Revelation and the wedding story of the Lamb. Now, here's the thing. When I look at us and me and the church coming in those back doors, I don't have the same lens that God has, but he sees us not dressed in our own deeds, but in the deeds of Jesus Christ. He doesn't see our actions, no matter how good or bad. He sees the cross, the freedom, the forgiveness. Otherwise, it's a waste, isn't it? Why have the cross if he doesn't see us clothed in Christ, stepping in? Don't look the wrong direction as you see this story play out. It's just too good a gaze to miss, to stop and look at the back door instead of looking into God's face. How personal is this for God? He puts himself in this role again and again and tells us, I'm waiting for you, I'm looking for you, and I have clothed you in Christ, and that will never change. At the heart of the universe is a gaze of love that never changes. So a few years ago, I was able to meet with some Iranian Christians. I've told you about them before, but their stories continue to inform how I see the gospel. And one of the questions that I love to ask them, because it's illegal to proselytize in their country, is how did you meet Christ? How did you learn about Jesus in this very closed country? And their stories, friends, include signs and wonders and visions I asked one of them, how did you meet Christ? And he said, he walked into my bedroom one night and said, I am Jesus, follow me. And I was like, well, that's one way. (laughs) 
So at one point in this uh, whole gathering, American Christians, Iranian Christians, I met a woman, and I asked her that question, how did you learn about Christ? And she began sharing her story from the very beginning. She said that she had been married off early in her teenage years by her family to a very cruel man. He was painfully abusive to her, um, but she had a son with him, and she knew she had very few rights as a woman to leave this marriage and that culture. And so she chose to stay for years and years in very severe abuse. And finally, she couldn't take it anymore, and she knew she had to find a way out. It was only through a legal divorce in the courts that she would ever have any right to see her own son. If she ever left without divorce papers, she would legally never be allowed to contact her child again. But everyone in that community knew that in the divorce court, while women were technically able to go and ask for a divorce, the judges were not obligated to give one. And it was well known that most judges would only grant a certificate of divorce to women in return for sexual favors. Women asking for divorce were treated like prostitutes. But when that happened, if there was a divorced woman, everyone knew what had happened. And they would shun her in the community, knowing that she was morally compromised. Not shun the judge, just the woman. So this woman wrestled with the idea of what life would be like if she stayed and what life would be like if she left. And finally, the abuse and the pain were too much for her, so she went to the judge. She gave him the payment that everyone knew was common, and she received a certificate of divorce. But instead of her life getting better, everyone around her knew what she had done. And the stigma of that changed her forever. Her family shunned her. They wouldn't give her a place to live. Her community turned against her. She had no job, no means of providing for herself. She found herself eventually homeless, living on the streets and begging with no means of getting food or shelter from anyone. And this was an even harder life than the life she felt she had lived with her cruel husband. And she knew that she would never survive on the streets. So after trying to sustain herself for years by begging, she went to the one person that she wanted to go to the least. She went back to the judge, the one who had granted her the divorce. She thought maybe out of guilt he would give her some money, but to her surprise, he took her into his home. He was kind to her, he gave her a room of her own and food and clothing, and she kept waiting for some payment to be required of her, but there was none. No request, no demand, just kindness. And after months, maybe over a year, of living with this man in separate rooms, she realized that he was the kindest man that she had ever known and that she unexpectedly had fallen in love with him. He told her that since the divorce had happened, someone had shared with him about Jesus, and he had changed entirely. He had secretly become a Christian, and everything about his life had been transformed. He, in the beginning, was just trying to make amends for his actions by taking this woman in, knowing her situation was his fault. But after months, maybe over a year of living with her, he realized that he loved her. And I'm telling you, this woman stood in front of me with an incredibly joyful face, lit from within with love, looked into my eyes and told me that Christ had transformed her. 
beginning with the love of one man who was now her husband, that God had given her a second chance and a second family, and her name wasn't even Gomer. Will you pray with me? Lord, we're grateful this morning that we get a chance to look into your eyes and worship and ask you again what you see when you see us. God, show us what you see when you see us. Show us that the acts of Christ in death and resurrection were not wasted, but that you have clothed us in righteousness and gaze on us again as we worship, as we surrender to you and show us again how you see us. In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, we pray.